There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 83 of the Digital Information Podcast for the week of April 7th, 2008. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking you along my excellent adventures through the world of short, Masonic educational papers. This and all other episodes are available at the website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com. And I encourage you to swing by and check them out and use them for your Masonic education, either within the Lodge or just for yourself. This week's episode deals with the moon and how it is seen from a historical standpoint of Freemasonry, as well as, again, just applying another degree of understanding as to its symbolical meanings within a lodge. It was done by uh, James Goss, who is the Grand Historian for the Grand Lodge of Vermont, and within it he does make a number of references to uh, the history of it within Vermont, but also takes a bit of a stroll over into the, the west side of the United States. So let's get going right now with James Goss's piece on the moon in Masonic history. There is no more spectacular reminder of our Masonic historical and ritualistic heritage than the moon at its height of fullness. While astronomers view the moon with an analytical eye of science, the moon has been a focal point for cultures around the world throughout history and has inspired music, poetry, religion, and other things alike. However, for Masons, particularly Vermont Masons, the moon has been a symbolic light in our ritual teachings, but also a literal light to our brethren of long ago. It behooves us to take a moment to remember the moon and its long association with the craft and its origins. Our direct Masonic traditions regarding the moon begins with the ancient Hebrews. In Genesis, we are told that the fourth day of creation God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. Despite the prohibitions against lunar worship in Deuteronomy and the Book of Kings, the moon is still regarded as a strong symbol of permanence and regularity associated with its usage to measure the passage of time. In fact, the monthly offerings to the moon found in the Numbers is still read in some Jewish synagogues. It is from the medieval European science of alchemy that we first use the moon in the graphic and ritualistic manners that Masons are accustomed to deriving their meaning. The alchemists were a group of mystics who first appeared in the 12th century and were the forerunners to our modern chemists. They believed that with proper mixture of chemicals and methods, base metals such as iron and lead could be turned into gold and silver. Beyond this, however, the alchemists were true philosophers who used symbols and drawings extensively in their teachings and who insisted on strict secrecy from their initiates. Much of the graphic symbolism used in masonry, such as images of the plum, square, level, rough, and perfashlers, may have been taken from alchemists' texts. To the alchemists, the moon was a symbol of the metal silver and was used to depict that substance in the obscure writings which transmitted their secret formulae. One of the most prevalent images used by the alchemists was the stylized drawing of the sun and the moon with human faces. 
These images are now associated with the Masonic tracing boards of England and monitors of such American Masonic ritualists as Jeremy Cross, who lectured in the lodges of Vermont in 1815. It is in the craft ritual and the structure of the Masonic Lodge itself that we must bring together all of the foregoing elements to give a true picture of all the uses of the moon in masonry. In the modern American ritual, the primary reference to the moon is as the second of the lesser lights of Freemasonry. This modern usage follows an early 18th century English ritual reference to the three lights of the lodge being the sun, the moon, and the master mason. In addition to these movable lights, there were also in these English lodge rooms three fixed lights, which are described by some Masonic historians as three windows in the lodge room to light men to, at, and from their work. These three windows were later replaced by three candles located in the east, south, and west corners of the lodge and situated before the master, junior, and senior deacons, respectively. The reference to the sun, moon, and master of the lodge as the three lesser lights in masonry and their particular association with these three burning tapers and the associated officers were developed by the so-called ancient Grand Lodge, which was active in England from the mid to late 18th century. The ancients were apparently consisted of masons hailing from Scotland and Ireland, were at odds with another faction of masons in England, the so-called Premier Grand Lodge. The ritual of the Premier Grand Lodge only referred to the three great lights without the ancients' reference to the lesser lights. The fact that the ancients held to the above interpretation of the three lesser lights was particularly significant for American masonry, as was their use of the deacons in their degree work, as we shall see. In the modern American web work ritual, the moon is referred to in the first degree as one of the three lesser or movable lights and is identified as a biblical ruler of the night, and as a reference to the regularity of, for the conduct of the master of the lodge. In the high symbolism of the lodge, the moon always has been particularly identified with the senior warden in the west, thus following the Egyptian tradition associating the moon with this direction. This reference also corresponds to the resuscitation of the senior warden's duty in the lodge. Some Masonic philosophers have found this to be a fitting parallel as to the light of the moon is a mere reflection of the great light of the sun. So, the senior warden, the officer associated with the Doric pillar of strength, is intended to be a reflection of the light of the worshipful master, who is associated with the ionic pillar of wisdom. It is thus particularly significant that the messenger of the, of the senior warden within the lodge is a junior deacon, who, as his jewel, wears a square compass enclosed in the moon. There is also one other strong association of the moon with masonry, which in many ways is more meaningful than all of the others. In the early 1800s, when masonry in Vermont was still a new venture, the Green Mountain State was a wild and unsettled place. It is difficult for us to imagine the thoughts and feelings of a 19th century Vermont mason stepping into a bitterly cold evening after a lodge to pursue his travel homeward. For him, a trip of seven miles at night after a lodge meeting was a major undertaking, where even the, the task of finding one's way was formidable. For this reason, many of the early lodges in Vermont and other jurisdictions adopted the custom of holding their meetings during the week of the full moon. Hence, these lodges were referred to as moon lodges. 
Following the phases of the moon was no trouble at all for the agrarian folks of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and the brilliant lesser light provided a beacon that guided our elder brethren homeward along the dirt roads and beaten paths of early Vermont. Thus, in 1817, 26 of the 40 lodges in Vermont were moon lodges, with the bulk of the others being located in areas of higher population and presumably better light. But alas, as so many customs of old advent of modern society and its technology slowly driven the moon lodge to the status of quaint anachronism. The invention of the automobile, street light, together with the general decline in agriculture, made the setting of a lodge, meeting by the phase of the moon, rather than on a fixed day, a nuisance without purpose. Thus, by 1979, of the 98 working lodges in the state of Vermont, only eight still had their meetings following the phases of the moon. However, there are a few lodges in Vermont who will not surrender this old custom. They serve as a reminder to the modern Masons, traveling home by the light of the moon, that they are, in essence, following the footsteps of their elder brethren, who, for whom the moon was a real as well as a symbolic light. An example of a lodge and its meeting on a follow the moon was the Cassia Lodge number 14, which held its first meeting in the Idaho Territories back in November of 1882. Albion was one of the oldest towns in Idaho, and in early days was a way station on the stage route from Kelton, Utah to Boise, Idaho. At the time Cassia Lodge was organized, its jurisdiction covered a wide territory extending up to a hundred miles in every direction. The members had come from such long distances by horseback and wagon, and was the reason for setting the meeting on Saturday nights on or before the full moon. One of the lodge's main social events each year was in those days was called the Grand Ball or a Dance. One such affair took place in, on February 14th in 1887, and must have been quite an event judging from the following committees that were appointed. Three members for arrangements, three members for music, Four members for the floor committee, six members for invitations, twelve members for reception. Entire families came to these dances. One time, as a joke, someone changed the coats and blankets of all the babies present. Most of the mothers picked up what they thought was their bundle and did not discover the mistake until they got home, possibly as far as thirty miles away. They all had to come back to Albion by horseback and carriage to find out whose youngster they had. One time there was a candidate for a Master Mason degree who did not have his fellowcraft proficiency. Rather than having him go the long way home and wait until the next meeting, members voted to waive the test and give him his Master Mason degree that evening. Another time a member joined under an assumed name, and after a regular Masonic trial it was voted by that lodge that he must take the degrees all over again under his right name. But it didn't say in the minutes whether or not he had to pay the fees again. So that wraps up Brother Goss's piece on the moon. And I find it interesting when I stop and read about that piece about uh, the swapping of the baby's clothes. About, oh, maybe that wouldn't go over so well in today's little bit more politically correct world. And you think if they had actually done some of that swapping, that there'd be uh, the police involvement nowadays. I know I'd be a little bit upset if I... Uh, got back home and found out that someone had swapped my baby and always had the burning question as to whether or not I got my actual baby back. But they were, they were different times back then, so I guess it's, uh, it was all good play. So I've been your host, Scott, and I've enjoyed our time together, as always. 
please swing by, drop a message. And you, probably the best way to get a hold of me is uh, by email at podcast at the digital freemason.com. So until next time, be sure to keep the shiny side up.